thank you, and good evening. Jesus of Nazareth is the most influential person who has ever lived. Twenty centuries after his death, he continues to exert his power of fascination over the minds of thinking men and women. But who was Jesus, really? Is he, as the Bible says, the divine Son of God? Or was he merely a human prophet, as Muslims have been taught to believe? Who is the real Jesus? Well, I propose to answer that question tonight as an historian. I shall look at the New Testament and the Kagan as an historian looks at any other sources for ancient history. I shall not treat them as inspired or holy books. Accordingly, I shall not require them to be inerrant or infallible in order to be valuable historical sources. By taking this historical approach, we prevent this debate from degenerating into arguments over Bible difficulties or Kaganic inconsistencies. The question is not whether the sources are inerrant, but whether they allow us to discover who the historical Jesus really was. Now, in order to determine who the historical Jesus really was, we need to have some objective criteria for assessing our sources. Professor John Meyer, an eminent New Testament historian, lists the following four criteria. One, multiple independent sources. Events which are reported by independent and especially early sources are likely to be historical. Two, dissimilarity. If a saying or event is different from prior Judaism and also from later Christianity, then it probably doesn't derive from either one, and so belongs to the historical Jesus. Three, embarrassment. Sayings or events that would have been embarrassing or difficult for the Christian church are unlikely to have been invented, and so are likely historical. Four, rejection and execution. Jesus' crucifixion is so indisputably established as an anchor point in history that words and deeds of Jesus must be assessed in terms of their likelihood of leading to his execution as the king of the Jews. A bland Jesus who just preached monotheism would never have provoked such opposition. When we apply such criteria to the New Testament, we're able to establish a good deal about the historical Jesus. Let me discuss just three facts that emerge about this remarkable man. Number one, Jesus' radical self-concept. The Kagan says that Jesus thought of himself as no more than a human prophet who told people to worship the one true God. However, on the basis of our criteria, it can be shown that among the historically authentic words of Jesus are claims that reveal his divine self-understanding. Take, for example, Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man. The uh, criteria of multiple sources and dissimilarity shows it to belong to the historical Jesus. Now, most laymen probably think that this title refers to Jesus' humanity, just as the title Son of God refers to his deity. But that's a mistake. It fails to take into account the Jewish background of this expression. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of a divine human figure coming on the clouds of heaven to whom God will give everlasting authority, glory, and dominion. 
no mere human being could be accorded such status. For this would be to commit the sin which Muslims call shirk, that is, giving something which properly belongs to God alone to someone else. Yet this is the status which Jesus claimed for himself. Probably the most famous Son of Man saying by Jesus comes at his trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. I quote from the Gospel of Mark. Then the high priest stood up and asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Every Muslim would have to agree with the high priest and the council that Jesus had committed blasphemy worthy of death in that he had made himself equal with God. Not only did Jesus claim to be the Son of Man, but he also thought of himself as the unique Son of God. Jesus' self-understanding as God's special Son comes to expression in his parable of the tenants of the vineyard, which even the radical, skeptical critics like those in the so-called Jesus Seminar recognize as authentic. In this parable, the vineyard symbolizes Israel. The owner of the vineyard is God. The tenants are the Jewish religious leaders, and the servants are the prophets sent by God. In Mark 12, verses 1 to 9, we read, A man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Finally, he had one left to send, a son who he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him. Now, what does this parable tell us about Jesus' self-understanding? It tells us that he thought of himself as God's only beloved son, distinct from all the prophets, God's final messenger, and even the heir to Israel. He did not think of himself as merely another human prophet. Jesus' self-concept is God's special son comes to explicit expression in Matthew 11:27. He said, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's unlikely that the Church invented this saying because it says that the Son is unknowable. No one knows the Son except the Father. But for the post-Easter church, we can know the Son. So by the criterion of dissimilarity, this saying is authentic. But what then does this saying tell us about Jesus' self-consciousness? It tells us that he thought of himself as the exclusive Son of God and the only revelation of God to mankind. Think of it. This is really incredible stuff, and yet this is what the historical Jesus believed.
C.S. Lewis was right when he said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come, said Lewis, with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Number two, Jesus' trial and crucifixion. According to the Gospels, Jesus was condemned by the Jewish high court on the charge of blasphemy and then delivered to the Romans for execution, for treason, for claiming to be the king of the Jews. Not only are these facts confirmed by independent biblical sources like Paul and the Acts of the Apostles, but they are also confirmed by extra-biblical sources from the Jewish historian Josephus and the Syrian writer Marabar Serapion, we learn that the Jewish leaders made a formal accusation against Jesus and participated in the events leading up to his crucifixion. From the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 43a, we learn the Jewish involvement in the trial was explained as a proper undertaking against a heretic. And from Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus, we learn that Jesus was crucified by Roman authority under the sentence of Pontius Pilate. According to L.T. Johnson, a New Testament historian at Emory University, the support for the mode of his death, its agents, and perhaps its co-agents, is overwhelming. Jesus faced a trial before his death, was condemned, and executed by crucifixion. Perhaps the single most egregious historical error found in the Quran is its claim that Jesus was not in fact crucified. Not only is there not a single shred of historical evidence for this remarkable hypothesis, but the evidence supporting Jesus' crucifixion is, as Johnson says, overwhelming. Those of you who are Muslims here tonight need to appreciate that no one who is not already a committed Muslim believes that the historical Jesus was not crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus is recognized even by the skeptical critics in the Jesus Seminar as to, quote Robert Funk, one indisputable fact. In fact, Paula Fredrickson, whose book From Jesus to Christ inspired the PBS documentary by the same name, declares flatly the crucifixion is the single strongest fact we have about Jesus. Number three, Jesus' resurrection. What happened to Jesus after his crucifixion? The majority of scholars who have written on this subject agree that three things happened. Number one, on the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Among the reasons which have led most scholars to this conclusion are the following. One, the old information handed on by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 implies the fact of the empty tomb. Two, the empty tomb story is part of the very old source material used by Mark in writing his gospel and is thus a very reliable source. Three, the empty tomb enjoys multiple independent attestation in the sources used by Matthew, Luke, and John. Four, the tomb was probably discovered empty by women. 
since given the low credibility given to women in that society, any later legendary account would certainly have made male disciples, like Peter and John, discover the empty tomb. And five, the earliest Jewish allegation that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body itself presupposes that the body was missing and the tomb was empty. Now, I could go on, but I think enough has been said to indicate why in the uh, words of Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist on the resurrection, by far most exegetes hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb. Number two, on multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experience appearances of Jesus alive after his death. This is a fact which is virtually universally agreed upon by New Testament scholars for the following reasons. First, the list of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances, which is quoted by Paul, guarantees that such appearances occurred. These included appearances to Peter, the twelve disciples, five hundred Christians at one time, James, the younger brother of Jesus, and Paul himself, who had been a persecutor of the early Christian church. And secondly, the appearance narratives in the Gospels provide multiple independent attestation of these appearances. Now at this point I'd like to pause to issue a corrective on something that Shabir Ali said in our debate Monday night on the resurrection of Jesus. He asserted, according to the great uh, late New Testament scholar Raymond Brown, that there was only one original resurrection appearance, not a multiplicity of them. I knew that Brown was too intelligent a scholar to have held such an opinion, and so I went and checked out the source myself. And as I suspected, Shabir has misunderstood what Professor Brown says. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, what Brown in fact says is that a more biblical approach is to suppose that one basic appearance underlines all the main gospel accounts of the appearances to the twelve, regardless of whether this is located in Galilee or Jerusalem. But Brown does not affirm the absurd conclusion that, Paul never, or that Jesus never appeared to Paul, for example, or to James, or the 500 brethren, or Mary Magdalene. On the contrary, even the skeptical German New Testament critic Gerhard Ludemann concludes it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. And finally, fact number three, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. Think of the situation the disciples faced following Jesus' crucifixion. Number one, their leader was dead, and Jews had no expectation of a Messiah who, instead of triumphing over Israel's enemies, would be shamefully executed as a criminal. Number two, according to Old Testament law, Jesus' execution exposed him as a heretic, a man literally accursed by God. And three, Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the general resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. 
Luke Johnson states, some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. And N.T. Wright, an eminent British scholar, concludes, that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. So in summary, there are three facts agreed upon by the majority of scholars who have written on this subject. The discovery of Jesus' empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief. I think that the best explanation of these three facts is that the disciples were right. God had raised Jesus from the dead. This has enormous theological significance. As the German theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg explains, the resurrection of Jesus acquires such decisive meaning, not merely because someone or anyone has been raised from the dead, but because it is Jesus of Nazareth, whose execution was instigated because he had blasphemed against God. If this man was raised from the dead, then that plainly means that the God whom he had supposedly blasphemed has committed himself to him. In summary, then, on purely historical grounds, we've seen, number one, that Jesus of Nazareth possessed a radical self-concept as the unique Son of God and the Son of Man, that he was tried, condemned, and crucified for his allegedly blasphemous claims, and third, that God raised him from the dead in vindication of those claims. All of this is in contradiction to the Kagan's claims that Jesus thought of himself as a mere prophet preaching a blasé monotheism, that he was not crucified, and that he did not rise from the dead. When you think about it, though, this isn't really surprising. I mean, which would you trust? A collection of documents written during the first generation after the events while the eyewitnesses were still alive, or a book written 600 years later by a man who had no independent source of historical information. Why do you even ask the question is to answer it. The New Testament is clearly the reliable source for the biography of Jesus of Nazareth. people are just arriving. There are some quite a few seats in the back. We'll just pause the debate just for maybe 30 seconds here while you find your seats, and then we will resume. But there's quite a few seats towards the back. And uh, one more time, I just want to mention that once we, once uh, Mr. Shabir Ali begins speaking again, and for the duration of the debate, we're asking that you please try not to cross the center aisle here, because that the video camera will be needing a clear uh, view. Just as quickly as you can, try and move in, find some seats towards the back.
Okay. The remainder of you, just try and find a seat as quickly as you can. I'll ask you to be as quiet as you can now. We'll resume the debate. It's Mr. Shabir Lee with his opening arguments. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Craig. I begin by praising God, and I ask him to guide us to know the truth, to show us the truth as truth, and help us to accept that, and to show us falsehood in its true colors, and help us also to stay away from that. It is my commitment to you tonight that if I understand what Dr. Craig is presenting to be the truth, then I will accept that. And I hope that we're all listening and learning with an open-minded attitude that the truth is the truth, wherever it comes from, and that we should accept it no matter what. We want to understand then, who really was Jesus? Is Jesus properly represented in the Quran, or is he properly represented in the Bible? Well, to a certain extent, the Muslim will answer both. The Jesus of the Quran and the Jesus of the Bible is one Jesus that both Muslims and Christians should believe in. Muslims believe from the Quran that Jesus was a mighty prophet. He came among the Jewish people, and that his disciples were also from among the Jewish people. Some of the Jewish people believed in him, some disbelieved him. And for Jesus to be properly understood, Jesus has to be seen against the background of the revelations that came before him, to prophets like Moses who came before him. And so his teachings had to be in accord with the teachings which were left by Moses and others. In other words then, Jesus could not have preached a faith which is radically different from the faith which was taught by God's prophets prior to Jesus. And in fact, when we look around at historical reconstructions of who Jesus was, we find very much among historians that Jesus is to be understood as a Jewish prophet. In fact, some have suggested some way out things, like Horton Mack talks about Jesus being a cynic, sage, or something like that. But uh, his position has not won widespread acceptance in scholarly circles, such as, for example, the position of E.P. Sanders, which uh, holds that Jesus was a Jewish uh, apocalyptic prophet. So the Quran, by presenting Jesus in this way, is in fact presenting us with that real historical Jesus. I want to ask a further question as to whether or not the Jesus of the Quran is entirely believable. Now, historians will look at uh, historical figures and they will tell us uh, where this person went, where he came from, where he lived, and where he died and so on. Excuse me. Historians tell us where things fall. <laughs> but not why things fall. Historians can only tell us where Jesus lived and walked, but historians cannot tell us that Jesus was the Son of God or that he was not the Son of God. This is a theological question. So I approach our study today not only as a historian, but also as a student of religion. I want to know what should I believe about Jesus. Now the Quranic Jesus is one whom I find to be entirely believable. I do not have any difficulty with believing in the Jesus of the Quran. The Quran tells me that Jesus was born of a virgin. I believe that. A historian might say, well, wait a minute, you cannot believe that because uh, nobody else has been born of a virgin. We don't see that happening around us. And I say, well, I have faith in God. I believe that with God anything is possible. God could cause Jesus to be born of a virgin. 
The Quran also affirms many miraculous deeds of Jesus, that he would raise the dead, that he cured the leper, that he healed the blind. The Quran tells us something interesting regarding the end of Jesus. Without going into deep details, the Quran tells us that God rescued Jesus from the plot of his enemies and raised him to himself. This raising here seems to resemble the Christian belief that Jesus ascended into heaven. And so it seems that finally we're both asserting that Jesus remains alive. Muslims and Christians also believe that Jesus will be coming again. It seems then that on some very crucial points concerning Jesus, our faiths intersect. Where we differ, however, is on the Christian claim that Jesus, on whom be peace, said that he was the Son of God, in a sense that makes him a divine person, the second person of the Holy Trinity. The Jews would have seen this as blasphemy if, if the Christ had actually claimed this. And in fact, I understand from Dr. Craig's apologetic that in fact this is how the Jews had understood it. And it's not that the Jews misunderstood. According to Dr. Craig, this was according to the Old Testament law. And who gave them that law? God himself. Muslims would say, no, Jesus never committed blasphemy. He was a righteous servant of God, a prophet, true from beginning to end and everywhere in the middle. Now I find then that believing in the Jesus of the Quran is not entirely difficult. I do not have to prove to a skeptic that Jesus of the Quran was true. After all, we cannot prove our faith, can we? We have faith. I can only say to the skeptic that the main representation of Jesus, the portrait of him as Jewish prophet that emerges out of the Quran, is believable. And that there is nothing in history that actually contradicts this main portrait of Jesus. And so there is no rational grounds on why I should refuse to believe in this Jesus. Now let's uh, look at the Jesus of the Bible. As I studied the apologetic of Dr. Craig and some other uh, apologists for the Christian faith, I found that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is presented as a solution to a problem. And I want to understand the problem a little bit more with you. Recall what Dr. Craig said, that Jesus made all of these radical claims. He claimed to be the Son of Man. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to have this intimate knowledge of the Father, such that C.S. Lewis could say that you have to choose between either declaring Jesus to be the Son of God or to declare him to be a liar. Nothing in between. And following those claims, Jesus was crucified as a blasphemer. Now it seems to me that if we come this far without assuming that Jesus resurrected from the dead, all we would have at this moment until we experience the resurrection, or proofs for the resurrection, is a Jesus who died as a blasphemer. In that case, nobody should believe in him. Up to this point, we'll continue to the resurrection. But in fact, this idea that the crucifixion is such a strong disproof of Jesus has been pounded so hard by the apologists that I started to believe it. 
In fact, it is even emphasized to the point of saying that the disciples themselves who lived and walked with Jesus could not believe in Jesus at this point. They had to forsake him as a false pretender to messiahship. They had to denounce him as a false prophet. But the only reason they could turn around and finally believe in Jesus is because Jesus eventually reappeared to them from the dead. So now I'm thinking, from where I stand, it seems to me like I am in the same position as the disciples of Jesus were on that Friday night following the crucifixion. Until Jesus reappears to me, I would have no reason for believing in him, but every reason for thinking that he's a false prophet and a false messiah. Mind you, I don't think so, because remember, I'm a Muslim, and I've just explained that I believe in Jesus. But if you trace my line of argument so far, it looks like what I'm saying is this. If I believe in the Quran, then I believe in Jesus. As a mighty prophet, a messenger of God, the messiah, who was born of a virgin, who performed many miraculous deeds. But if I put away the Quran, and if I turn to the Bible for that information about Jesus, then I will come to his crucifixion, which would prove to me, and should prove to me, that Jesus was a false pretender, in whom nobody should believe, until we see some good reasons for believing that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead. Do we have good reasons for thinking that Jesus resurrected from the dead? One of the chief reasons for believing this is the multiple reports of appearances of Jesus to his disciples and friends. But as I pointed out previously, according to Dr. Raymond Brown, the reports of Jesus appearing on multiple occasions to his disciples are actually reports that evolved from a single report. In other words, there was a single report about a single incident of Jesus appearing to his twelve disciples, rather eleven, and then that one report emerged into a variety of reports. Dr. Craig issues a corrective, and I'd like to look at that because I did a little bit of homework too after Dr. Craig and I talked about it. Dr. Raymond Brown, in his book, The Virginal Conception and Bodily Resurrection of Jesus, uh, on page 101. I'm sorry, Dr. Craig, I'm going to share this before, but I didn't realize it was going to come up. He says, and I quote him in his, in his note 170, I do not intend to discuss at any length the problem of the minor appearances of Jesus to Mary Magdalene and other women and to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, for the recipients of these appearances were not official witnesses, and so apparently did not shape the resurrection faith of the early community. For instance, the Markan Appendix in 1611 reports that no credence was given to Mary Magdalene. The omission of these minor appearances in Paul's Corinthian list does not necessarily imply that the tradition of such appearances was not, was not historical, or was a late development, as some scholars would argue. The claim that the risen Jesus appeared first to Cephas means that among those who would testify publicly, Peter was the first to see Jesus. It would not exclude an earlier appearance to the Magdalene. So Raymond Brown, in that discussion, was not concerned with the minor appearances that were not formative in the development or, or the origin of that idea that Jesus had resurrected. Recall that our discussion, if for those of you who were there on Monday night, uh, was on the question of what formed or caused the development and origin of this belief among the disciples. 
And it was not the resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene or to anyone else. It was the appearance to the disciples themselves. And how many appearances were they? Dr. Craig would want to argue that there were multiple appearances. And uh, I find support from Raymond Brown that, uh, in fact, there was only one appearance. And there is a crucial problem regarding this appearance report. Where exactly did Jesus appear to his disciples? Was it in Galilee or was it in Jerusalem? If it were in Jerusalem, then Jesus, when he appeared to his disciples, specifically said, do not leave the city until the power comes to you from on high, which we know came at Pentecost, 50 days later. So there was no chance for the disciples to have gone to Galilee unless they disobeyed Jesus' instruction. And if Jesus had first appeared to them in Galilee, as would be reported in Matthew chapter 28, then in that appearance we see the disciples doubting that this was actually Jesus that appeared to them. But nevertheless, Jesus gives them a great commission. And it would seem then that this is the end of the appearances and there would be no room for a Jerusalem appearance. In fact, this is the interpretation and commentary that has been given by Raymond Brown. Now, Dr. Craig and others tried to give a sequence of these narratives to try and bind them all together in a coherent sequence. But Dr. Craig says that such a sequence, or rather, Dr. Brown says, Dr. Brown says that such a sequence does too much violence to the gospel narratives. And the same reference that Dr. Craig gave earlier on, the Bible commentary on the Gospel of John. So then, where we are is, is here. The Quran does not deny that Jesus appeared to be crucified. In fact, this is what the Quran says. They killed him not, nor did they crucify him, but it was made so to appear to them. As for those who differ concerning him, they are in doubt concerning him, or concerning it, concerning the matter of the crucifixion. They have no knowledge concerning it except that they follow a conjecture. They did not definitely kill him. On the other hand, God raised him to himself. Surely God is mighty, he is wise. There have been many interpretations of this passage in the Quran from Surah 4, verse number 157. Some commentators have held that someone else was made to look like Jesus and that someone else was crucified. Another interpretation that is gaining plausibility among Muslim scholars in modern times is the interpretation that, in fact, while it appeared that Jesus was being crucified, in fact, they did not succeed in killing him by crucifixion. And hence, on the definition that crucifixion means killing by hanging on a cross, in fact, while it appeared to the opponents of Jesus that they were doing exactly that, they had not succeeded in doing it. Now, I present this as a plausible hypothesis, which would take into consideration the fact of the trial and the execution by hanging him on the cross, and the discovery of the empty tomb. And I would like to present that if we take the earliest narratives, like for example the Markan narrative, especially in its pre-Markan form, then that narrative would be in harmony with this plausible interpretation of the Quran. And in that case, what we would have is the Jesus of the Quran that is believable from beginning to end, a Jesus in the Quran that does not contradict 
the historical findings. And on the other hand, we would have the Jesus of the Bible who cannot be believed in unless it can be proved that he actually resurrected from the dead. Now, to prove that he is resurrected from the dead, one has to have reliable reports. But we've already seen that first, the reports are so contradictory that if one were to read them and carefully study them, it becomes difficult to believe in these reports. Second, even though the reports tell you that Jesus appeared to his disciples, notice something that I said before. In Matthew 28:17, it says that when Jesus appeared to his disciples on that mountain in Galilee, they saw him and they worshipped him, but some doubted. One Bible translation says some were not sure it really was Jesus. And another translation says all, they doubted, which I take to mean that they all doubted. And if we study all of the reports carefully, we see that the doubt was a persistent one that seems to survive in many of these reports, even in the Gospel according to John, where it appears that John is covering up that doubt. Nevertheless, we can read between the lines and we find that the doubt still remains. So if we have a variety of reports that tell us that Jesus rose from the dead, they cannot agree with each other, rendering them difficult to believe. And even if we were to take the narratives at face value, they're telling us that Jesus appeared, but he could not be positively identified. How could we then be certain that we have proof that Jesus resurrected from the dead? And so recall where we came so far. If I believe in the Quran, I would believe that Jesus is believable. Jesus is a prophet, a messenger of the mighty God. If I were to put the Quran away and examine the Bible and try to believe in Jesus, I would come to a point where I understand that Jesus is a false prophet, he is a blasphemer, a false messiah. Only if someone can show me that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead can I believe in the biblical Jesus. So I put before you that the Quranic Jesus is believable and the biblical Jesus has this problem that I hope that Dr. Craig will shed some light upon. Thank you. about the historical Jesus that I attempted to establish in my opening speech, let me respond to Shabir Ali's general remark that the uh, Jesus in the Quran is easy to believe in uh, as opposed to the Jesus in the New Testament who appears to be a blasphemer. Well, I certainly uh, agree with that. The intrinsic probability of believing in someone who's merely a human being is much easier than believing in someone who is the divine son of God and uh, whose followers claim he rose from the dead. But notice that in assessing historical hypotheses, we must not consider merely the intrinsic probability of a hypothesis, but you also consider the conditional probability 
of that hypothesis on the evidence. And it's that which is crucial in my argument tonight. I'm arguing that when you consider the evidence, then conditional or relative to the evidence, the portrait of Jesus painted in the New Testament is of a much higher probability than the uh, probability that the canonic portrait of Jesus is correct. Now, I agree with Shabir that if Jesus did die as a blasphemer and didn't rise from the dead, then we should reject him. That's absolutely correct. And that's what the New Testament says. Paul wrote that Jesus uh, Christ preached as the crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to pagans. But the reason that the early church believed in this, despite that intrinsic difficulty, is his resurrection from the dead. And that's why my case hinges tonight on the evidence of his resurrection. Now, you'll remember I argued three things. First, that Jesus thought of himself as the unique Son of God and the divine Son of Man. And I looked at three specific claims in attestation for this. I was shocked that Shabir never contested this point in his opening speech. He never denied that Jesus of Nazareth, in fact, made those claims. And that is crucial, because if he made those claims, then as a Muslim, you've got to believe them. Because the, the, the Quran says Jesus is a prophet, and therefore you must believe what he says. But what he said is that he is the Son of Man and the Divine Son of God. And therefore, you, you must believe in him. So that's, that's critical. Uh, let me just emphasize from his saying in Mark 14.62 at his trial, where he claimed to be uh, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. Robert Gundry, in his commentary on Mark, asks, what did Jesus say that was blasphemous? And this is what he responds. We may best think that the high priest and the rest of the Sanhedrin judged Jesus to have verbally robbed God of incommensurateness and unity by escalating himself to a superhuman level by portraying himself to sit at God's right hand and come with the clouds of heaven. In other words, incredibly, what Gundry is saying, without any consciousness of Islam, is that Jesus committed the very sins that Islam says are unforgivable. He robbed God of incommensurateness and unity. He committed shirk, in effect, if the claims were not true. But if they were true, then he was who he said he was, and we should believe in him. Second, I argue that Jesus uh, suffered death by crucifixion. And here Shabir agrees that Jesus was crucified. Now, I find this remarkable and, and testimony to Shabir's genuine openness to the truth. Because the Quran says, they did not slay him, neither did they crucify him. But Shabir is willing now to say, yes, they did crucify him. But he didn't quite die. He was taken down from the cross still alive, barely. And they thought he was dead. And then they put him in the tomb, and God assumed him into heaven before he could pass away. Well, this is a hypothesis of desperation, folks. This is to resuscitate the old apparent death theory of 18th century German theology. And the reason that no contemporary historian holds to that anymore is that Jesus, as a result of what he suffered, his scourging, his crucifixion, uh, in no way was he still alive when he was taken down from the cross. These Romans were professional executioners. The Jews had asked that the crucified men have their legs broken so that they would die quickly and be taken away. They came to Jesus. They saw he was already dead, and therefore they didn't break his legs. But a soldier took his spear and thrust it in his side, to see whether he was alive or not, uh, and, and he was dead. And the idea 
that Jesus was still alive is a hypothesis of enormous improbability on the evidence, and I think a hypothesis of desperation. Thirdly, I argued then that there's good reason to think that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And I looked at the evidence for his empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus after his death, and the very origin of the disciples' belief that he was risen. Now here, Shabir says in general, well, the gospel accounts are contradictory. Not at all. Remember, we're not arguing about biblical inerrancy tonight. We're treating these as ordinary historical documents. And there is a historical core that emerges from all four of these Gospels. Any discrepancies or differences are in the secondary circumstantial details. And these are to be found in any collection of independent historical accounts of an event. The Gospels all agree that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified in Jerusalem by Roman authority during the Passover feast having been arrested and convicted on charges of blasphemy by the Jewish Sanhedrin and then slandered before the Roman governor Pilate uh, on charges of treason. He died within several hours and was buried Friday afternoon by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb which was sealed with a stone. Certain women followers of Jesus, including Mary Magdalene, uh, observed his interment, visited the tomb early Sunday morning only to find it empty. Thereafter, Jesus appeared alive from the dead to the disciples, including Peter, who then proclaimed the message of his resurrection. All four Gospels attest to these central facts, and those are enough to provide warrant for belief in his resurrection. Many, many more details could be added by including details attested by three out of the four Gospels, but this historical core is sufficient. First of all, I looked at five lines of evidence for the empty tomb, and again, Shabir doesn't deny the empty tomb because he thinks that God miraculously took the body of Jesus into heaven before Jesus could die in the empty tomb. So we agree with that. Second, we talked about the appearances of Jesus. And here I think our differences are, are just academic. Uh, he points out from Raymond Brown, a good scholar, that there was a single appearance to the Twelve that was located in various ways in the Gospels, Jerusalem or Galilee. But notice the quotation he read from Brown supported my view that there were recipients of resurrection appearances who were not among the official witnesses. And this is not a later development. So that that actually proves my point. There were a multiplicity of witnesses, but of course they didn't name the women in official witness lists because women in that society were not very credible. Shabir says, but if there were many, then why does it say in Luke to remain in Jerusalem? As I.H. Marshall, New Testament commentator on Luke, points out, Luke offers a telescoped narrative where it makes it look like it all happened on Easter, even the ascension. But when you read the book of Acts, which is Luke's sequel to his gospel, you find that, in fact, these appearances occurred over a 40-day period of time. And there's no reason to think that the disciples hadn't gone back to Galilee in the interim, just as is multiply attested in the other gospels. In any case, as I say, these are... Quibbling, this is academic. The point remains that wherever they were located, there was a multiplicity of appearances of Jesus alive after his death. And you've got to explain those. Thirdly was the very origin of the disciples' belief. How did they come to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, which contradicts all Jewish beliefs about the afterlife? You, you can't explain that, I think, in the absence of the resurrection. Kenneth Craig, the great Islamicist, has written, Muslim writers confront a deep historical problem since they are obliged to explain the impact of Jesus in terms of his teachings only. 
The place where the resurrection stands is for Islam a blank. Yet its sequel cannot be ignored. Even if, on the Muslim view, it has to be a sequel without a properly total source. N.T. Wright says the same thing. Without the resurrection, there is a gaping hole in the middle of first century history that nothing else can plug. I think that the best explanation of these facts is that the disciples were right, that Jesus had raised from the dead. But Shabir offers an alternative explanation. He says, God assumed Jesus immediately into heaven. Let me quickly mention some objections to this view. Number one, merely visionary appearances cannot explain the origin of belief in Jesus' resurrection. As the German theologian Hans Kessler said, the idea of an isolated resurrection prior to the end of the world goes against all Jewish modes of thought. So why, if they had visions of Jesus, as Shabir imagines, would they proclaim his resurrection rather than his assumption into heaven? He hasn't been able to show his hypothesis and explain the origin of their belief in the resurrection, contrary to Jewish beliefs. Secondly, the New Testament consistently draws a distinction between resurrection appearances of Christ and mere visions of Christ. The appearances of Christ ceased after a brief period of time, but visions of Christ continued on in the early church, and in Muslim nations, many people still have visions of Christ today, through which they've come to believe in him. But these aren't resurrection appearances. How can you explain the difference unless the appearances uh, were, in fact, bodily, physical appearances, not mere visions? Finally, two theological objections to Shabir's point. Number one, it comes too late to assume Jesus into heaven when he's already in the tomb. He's already suffered humiliation, suffering, and shame. And there is no point now in rescuing the prophet when he's laid in the tomb more than half dead. It's too little too late. But secondly, his hypothesis turns God into a deceiver who fooled the disciples into believing Jesus was risen from the dead so that he went out and preached his resurrection, thus foisting Christianity upon the world and fostering this deception that has led to a third of the world's population being Christian. So his hypothesis turns God into a deceiver, which is theologically unobjectionable. For these four reasons, I don't think that Shabir's hypothesis works. On the contrary, I really believe it's a hypothesis of desperation. And if he is open to the truth, I think he will come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Hello again. Yes, Dr. Craig, I am still open to the truth and I'm listening. Let me see what you have said about the Jesus of the Quran. Basically, you have said, yeah, the Jesus of the Quran is not difficult to believe in because in any case, he's so bland that anyone can believe in him. And okay, so I believe in a bland Jesus, but at least I believe in him. But I believe that, Je that Jesus is more than just a bland Jesus. He is a prophet, a messenger. He's one of the mighty messengers of God. And I believe that he is God's Messiah. He's not the Davidic Messiah. If he were the Davidic Messiah, he couldn't die. But he was a prophet Messiah. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, as reported in the New Jerome Biblical Commentary on page 1323, affirmed that the Jewish expectation had uh, a, a, a looking forward to three different messiahs. A prophet Messiah, a priestly Messiah, and a Davidic Messiah. Notice that the Gospels have Jesus representing all three somehow, but uh, if he were the Davidic Messiah, he could not die. If he were the Davidic Messiah, he had to sit in the throne and rule over Israel. This we know he has not done. 
So Jesus in the Quran to me is, is a great Jesus and I believe in him and I love him. Now are there any objections to my proposal that Jesus did not die on the cross? Dr. Craig thinks that there are some objections. Why would the disciples proclaim the resurrection of Jesus? Well, in answer to that, I say that we do not in fact know what exactly the disciples preached, even though many people may be confident already that we do know. But recall, what we read about the disciples is in the Acts of the Apostles, a document which, according to Raymond Brown, was written around the year 85. In fact, there is a widespread scholarly consensus uh, of a date of somewhere between 80 and 90. This would make it about 55 years after the crucifixion. And it is said that the gospel, or rather the, the author of Acts of the Apostles, wrote down not historically what the disciples actually preached, but what Luke in his day thought that the disciples would have preached. Naturally, the preaching is stylized according to the later Christian belief that has evolved towards the end of the first Christian century. But when we study these reports, we look for things which are there, which rub against the grain. And we think that the writer did not have a personal interest in reporting that. If we look at these reports, we see that this preaching of the earliest disciples used as a core a reference to the 16th Psalm. And when you go to that psalm, we see that this psalm actually speaks about somebody who had a close brush with death, but didn't die. For example, the New Jerusalem Bible, uh, in a footnote on page 827, says that his lively faith and total commitment to God call for a union that defies dissolution. Hence, he must pray to escape death, which would break that union. Moreover, the New Jerome uh, Biblical Commentary explains the meanings of the uh, key Hebrew words there. And uh, further on, we read in the interpreter's one volume commentary on the Bible, and this is important. Speaking about the psalmist here, it says, after a close brush with death, the poet rejoices, and so on. So I take it that the earliest belief was that in fact Jesus did escape death. No, he did not die. So we cannot say that we know that the disciples proclaimed the resurrection from the dead. What is more likely is that the disciples proclaimed that after Jesus had been put on the cross, Jesus is now alive again. Now, Dr. Craig says these were not mere visions. Well, whatever they were, whatever the disciples experienced, on that one occasion that Raymond Brown talks about, it is possible that the disciples saw a vision which was so strong, which was so convincing, which was so assuring that Jesus is alive, that they were able to go forward and proclaim their faith in the Christ. Now, Muslim commentators on the Quran in Surah 3, verse number 55, where it says, if uh, When God said, Oh Jesus, I'm going to take you and raise you to myself. Muslim commentators have said that this uh, refers to God raising Jesus into heaven, after which God granted a vision to the disciples because they were saddened at the parting of the Messiah and they wanted to be satisfied. God satisfied them by showing them a vision of the Messiah. So with that vision, they were not deceived. We do not believe that God deceived the disciples, but we believe that God rescued Jesus from the plots of the enemies. And if anyone fail, and if anyone have their plots turned against them, it is the enemy. And uh, they just simply got what they deserved. But on the other hand, the disciples of Jesus have the satisfaction that they needed. 
Dr. Craig says, well, wait a minute. There would be no point to letting Jesus suffer a part of the way on the cross and then saving him. But notice that in Christian theology, Jesus suffered all of the way and then God saved him. So I do not feel that there is any rational objection here to the Muslim understanding that God rescued Jesus and saved him from his enemies. Now, Dr. Craig says that he had put out three facts, and to his fact number one, he was surprised that I did not reply. He said, Jesus made all these claims, which amount to blasphemy in the Old Testament law. But notice that I did reply to that in two ways. First, in presenting the Muslim understanding, I presented Jesus, who has to be understood as a historical person who lived in Palestine and who was well within the Jewish tradition. He could not have preached something which is uh, radically different from the faith which was represented by the prophet Moses before him. And so Jesus could not have made these radical claims. It would just be theologically impossible from that point of view. Second, if Jesus had actually made these claims, then we're starting with a Christ who blasphemed. And once he died the death of a blasphemer, there would be no reason to believe in him. But the only reason we can believe in Jesus is because we know that Jesus is true and he did not blaspheme. Notice that if you take the view that he had blasphemed and he died as a blasphemer, there is no reason for thinking that God would want to raise him from the dead. And yet, in Dr. Craig's best apology for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he admits that the weakest part of his, theory, of his hypothesis is it is ad hoc in that it assumes that God exists. It is not a historical hypothesis. It is not a naturalistic hypothesis. He says that it would be so impossible for Jesus to just simply uh, spontaneously come back to life that you may as well suppose that E.T. came and stole away his body. But only on the hypothesis that God exists can you assert now that God raised Jesus back to life. It is a theological hypothesis. But I would like to add and clarify, not only do we need for God to exist, but we have to have a God who wants to raise Jesus back from the dead. And if you have a man who died as a blasphemer, according to your explanation, then on what theological basis should we assert that God would want to raise this person back to life? Notice what Dr. Craig has said. By raising Jesus back to life, God had actually vindicated all of the claims of this man. And God is showing that what he said was actually true. But if God gave a law which says that if a man comes and makes these claims, he's a blasphemer, and then a man comes and makes those claims, then according to God's laws, he's a blasphemer, and there would be no reason for God to come to the defense of this man who is a blasphemer according to God's own law. You might say, well, wait a minute, but God did resurrect him from the dead, and that proves that he was not a blasphemer. But notice that we cannot reverse the logic. We cannot assume the very point which is a question. If we ask, how do we know that Jesus is true? Dr. Craig and others say, because God raised him from the dead. And if God did not raise him from the dead, we should conclude that he was a blasphemer. The only reason we could know he was true is because God raised him from the dead. So you cannot assume that God raised him from the dead before proving it. And in order to prove it, you have to assume it. So there is no way of getting out of this circular lock, and we are left with Jesus who died in that particular way. And in that case, nobody should believe in him. But in that case, why did the disciples believe in him? This is Dr. Quest's question to me. And I say, the disciples believed in Jesus because they believed in him before the crucifixion. He had made such a strong impact in their lives that they should never stop believing in him. And in fact, they didn't stop. 
The Gospel according to Luke in chapter 24 verse 19 shows that even after the crucifixion, the disciples continued to believe in Jesus as a great prophet. They lost hope that he was the Messiah who would sit on the throne of David, of course, but they still continued to believe that he was a great prophet. Notice that the crucifixion scene itself inspired faith. Because at the crucifixion scene, the Roman centurion announced faith. And the Gospel according to Luke adds that the multitudes went away beating their breasts. You can just imagine these people going away saying, What have we done here? They were convinced about Jesus, even at the crucifixion scene. These were not people who thought that Jesus was a blasphemer. So, to sum up then, the Jesus of the Quran is entirely believable. He's not a bland Jesus. He's a marvelous Jesus. And that Jesus, who is presented in the Quran in its main outline, fits naturally with uh, historical studies on Jesus. The best reconstructions on Jesus show that he was a Jewish prophet, speaking about the end times, calling people back to faith in God. And this is indeed what Muslims believe him to be. If I am to leave the Quran aside and turn to the Bible, I see that there is an inherent problem that is irresolvable, and in that case there is no reason for believing in Jesus. Dr. Craig himself has written, more than once, that if Jesus did not rise, then Christianity is a fairy tale that no rational person should believe. So in that case, one has to present very strong evidence to prove that Jesus did rise from the dead, and I do not believe that we have seen that uh, reasonable evidence tonight. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed tremendously the debates that uh, Shabir Ali and I have had this week, and on this, the last night of our uh, week of debating, I must say I'm stunned at the weakness of his response to the arguments that I've given. Uh, consider the first one, that Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be the Son of God and the Son of Man. Shabir hasn't disputed this historically at all. He's not tried to dispute the authenticity of any of those sayings of Jesus that I offered you tonight. Instead, he gives a priori theological arguments, saying that you can't accept these because it's theologically impossible. Well, Shabir, you may have to change your theology in light of these uh, events. That's the whole point. He says, but look, if Jesus died as a blasphemer, God would have no reason to raise him from the dead. But the point is, of course, is that he's not a blasphemer if he's telling the truth. And that's what the resurrection shows. Shabir says, but... Uh, he, he blasphemed against God, and therefore, by Jewish law, he was a blasphemer. No, what the Jewish law says is that any man who made these claims is blaspheming. But, of course, the whole point is that this shows he wasn't merely a man, just as C.S. Lewis said. Instead, he doesn't fit the category of the blasphemer. He falls into the category of the Jewish martyr. And God has vindicated the Jewish martyr by raising him from the dead revealing that those allegedly blasphemous claims were not blasphemous at all. And remember, Shabir has never denied that he made those claims tonight. And you as a Muslim, if you are a Muslim, must believe what Jesus of Nazareth said, because he was a prophet. Now, the second point I made is that Jesus died by crucifixion. And here Shabir did not attempt to redefend his hypothesis of Jesus being taken down, still barely alive. I pointed out that this is the theological equivalent of the flat earth theory, that no historian defends the apparent death theory anymore because the professional executioners, who were the Roman soldiers, certainly could ensure the death of Jesus. If he weren't dead, he would have died almost immediately 
uh, when taken down without immediate and drastic medical attention. So this apparent death theory, I think, is just desperate. Now, what about the resurrection? Shabir dropped his point about the accounts being contradictory, as I showed the historical core attested in all four Gospels. The empty tomb has never been disputed tonight, that the tomb was found empty. The appearances, uh, he dropped his point there about uh, the multiplicity of the appearances. Even his own scholars that he's quoted agree in a multiplicity of appearances after Jesus' death. What about the origin of the disciples' belief that he was risen? I showed there's a great hole in history on the Islamic view. Shabir responds, well, there were three kinds of messiahs. Not all were a Davidic messiah. But he must understand the argument here. Even if the disciples didn't stop believing in Jesus, say, as a prophet, the point is that there's no anticipation of a dying, much less rising, Davidic messiah. And that's what they later believed him to be. So you've got to explain the origin of that belief. And Islam can't do it because it doesn't have the historical antecedents to overcome his death as a blasphemer. Moreover, it never is able to explain how they came up with this un-Jewish idea that he was risen from the dead, when no one was supposed to rise from the dead until the general resurrection after the end of the world. The hole in history still remains. Um, I then argued that the best explanation of these events is that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. And I offered a four-point critique of Shabir's assumption into heaven hypothesis. Number one, I argued, it doesn't explain the belief of the disciples in the resurrection of Jesus. Why didn't they just believe, say, in his uh, assumption into heaven? And Shabir says, well, they didn't preach the resurrection of Jesus. And he bases this on the book of Acts. But that's not the earliest sources we have. According to Helmut Kuster, who is a professor at Harvard University, it is the creedal formula cited in 1 Corinthians 15, which goes back to within five years after the crucifixion, that makes it probable that this understanding of the gospel was shared not only by the church of Antioch from the very beginning, but by those to whom Jesus uh, appeared, such as Peter and James. What Paul preached, he says, was never the subject of controversy. Jesus' death and resurrection was the event upon which their common proclamation was based. In fact, James D.G. Dunn says it remains an indisputable fact that the earliest believers were absolutely convinced that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. That was the message they preached. But you can't explain why they would preach that if they simply saw visions of Jesus. Now, my second point was that the New Testament consistently draws an appearance, a, a difference between an appearance of Christ and a vision of Christ. We still have visions of Christ in the church today, but they're not resurrection appearances. And again, Shabir merely responded, maybe they had visions so strong that they continued to believe in him. But again, here he doesn't get the argument. The argument is, even the greatest visionary experience would at most lead the disciples in line with Jewish beliefs to think that God had assumed Jesus into heaven. But they didn't preach that. Instead, they preached his resurrection contrary to Jewish modes of thought and Jewish expectations. How do you explain that if all they had was mere visionary appearances rather than genuine resurrection appearances? In other words, what I'm asking is, if God did to Jesus what Shabir claims, then why wasn't that proclaimed by the disciples? Instead, they proclaimed something radically different, his resurrection, and that needs to be explained. My third argument was a theological argument that it's too little too late to rescue Jesus once he's already in the tomb. Uh, because he's already suffered humiliation, shame, 
and persecution at the hands of his enemies. And that's what the, the whole motive of, of assuming him into heaven is supposed to rescue him from. But it doesn't do it. You might as well let him die and raise him from the dead, which is what the Jewish Christian belief is. That resurrection entails the death of the prior, uh, the prior death of the person, otherwise it's not a genuine resurrection. So it's a part of the, the theory. Finally, my fourth objection was never answered by Shabir, and that is that on his view it turns Allah into a deceiver. Because Allah deceived the disciples into believing that Jesus was risen from the dead and foisted this delusion called Christianity upon the waiting world to its detriment, according to Islamic belief. So again, these, these arguments by Shabir are so weak if he is open to truth. As he claims that he is, I want to invite Shabir tonight to think about becoming a Christian. Honestly, this is where the evidence lies. And so I want him to think about that for himself in tonight's debate. Thank you, Dr. Craig, for that engaging response, and thank you all for being so lively. I really appreciate that. It's fun. Actually, in some ways, I feel that I'm already a Christian. If being a Christian means an imitator of Christ, which is what the word really means, then every Muslim prides himself or herself in being an imitator of Christ. We believe that we have the same beliefs that Christ had. We believe in the same God he believed in. We worship the same God. And in some ways, we also worship in the way that he worshipped. In Matthew 26, verse 39, Jesus fell on his face and worshipped God. And Muslims do that even today. Now more to the point. Dr. Craig says that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And I didn't answer the point, he says, because I have a certain theology. And I should change my theology. But notice, it is not a Muslim theology that says it is impossible for Jesus to have claimed this. It is the logic of Christian theology. Because Christian theology, or more to the point, Christian apologetics has it, that Jesus made these claims, which were blasphemous claims at the time. Because nobody could have known at the time that he was the Son of God, and that he deserved to make these claims. Judging by the Old Testament law, as Dr. Craig said right at the beginning, when Jesus made these claims, these claims could only have been judged to be blasphemous claims. And when he died, he died the death as an obvious blasphemer. If anyone was deceiving anyone now, if Jesus was not a blasphemer, everyone must have been deceived at this moment in thinking that he is a blasphemer. But they would be deceived based on the Old Testament law itself. I would say they wouldn't be deceived. Jesus did not make blasphemous claims, and nobody was deceived into thinking that he was a blasphemer. He was not. But if you follow Christian apologetics, if you take that line of argument, then when he died, he must be judged as a blasphemer, and his own disciples who lived and walked with him made this conclusion at that point. The only reason they could reverse that conclusion is because they saw Jesus reappear from the dead. This is the Christian logic. Now, it means that we have to have a proof that is so overwhelming, so strong, strong enough to make us reverse that judgment. And if we don't, then there is no rational reason for reversing that judgment. Now, Dr. Craig says that I did not um, try to explain my hypothesis of Jesus remaining alive. And he says further that no historian holds to that hypothesis, and I agree with that. 
No historian today says that we have found out that Jesus survived crucifixion. As far as historical inquiry is concerned, Jesus was killed on the cross and he remains dead. It is not a historical conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead or that God raised him alive into heaven. This is a theological conclusion. So my conclusion is theological. Dr. Craig's conclusion is also theological. Neither is strictly historical as Dr. Craig himself admits about his own conclusion. But then, is my conclusion plausible knowing what crucifixion is all about? First, as Dr. Craig himself admitted on Monday night, unless Jesus was speared in the side, you could not be sure he was actually dead. Now, this spearing of Jesus is mentioned only in John's Gospel, which is the least historical of the four, and many scholars think that John, in fact, introduced this idea for his own theological purpose to match with a previous prediction from Zechariah which says they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. Other interpreters have come to the rescue. Dr. Raymond Brown, for example, thinks that this spearing is actually historical. However, he does not think it is a spearing that would have pierced Jesus to bring out blood and water as John's Gospel seems to indicate. He thinks that the verb that is used there indicates a kind of prodding that one would give to a sleeping person to make sure that he is uh, not just simply sleeping to wake him up if he were indeed sleeping. And Raymond Brown is puzzled by this because he, he wonders, why would the centurion want to do this knowing that Jesus was already dead? And this just simply indicates that it was not quite certain that Jesus had died on the cross. And so when the Quran says, When those who differ concerning it are in doubt concerning the matter, it seems that the Quran is absolutely right. Recall from Mark's Gospel, which is the earliest of the four, that Pilate had wondered if Jesus had died so soon. And he asked the centurion, and the centurion said, yes, he had died. And then Pilate gave permission to take his body down. Notice, however, that Pilate was interested not in killing Jesus, but in letting him go free. Notice that the centurion had faith in Jesus. Would he be interested in killing Jesus? or letting Jesus go free. Notice also that Jesus was given a drink when he was on the cross. And according to Mark's Gospel, the first time that drink was offered to him, it was mixed with myrrh. And according to Raymond Brown, herbalists in the ancient days noticed that myrrh can be used as an anesthetic. So if we put all of the pieces together, these and more, I think it is very historically plausible that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. Now, historians don't have to say, okay, but God raised him into life. Because historians would think, okay, if he didn't die on the cross, surely when they buried him under, you know, three feet of dirt, he would be certainly dead. Or if you put him in a tomb and you roll a great stone against the tomb and you lay him there for seven days, he would definitely be dead. But the circumstances were not such. Because he was taken by a person who was one of the sympathizers. He was put in an airy chamber. And then eventually this chamber is found to be empty. Is it not possible that where history stops, God took over and God raised Jesus alive into heaven? I think that's quite plausible. And that would account for the empty tomb. It would account for the appearances, according to the commentary that has been given by Muslim commentators, that Jesus was, uh, was shown to his disciples, so they believed in him, and they proclaimed that Jesus was alive. That would explain all of that. 
and the Jesus of the Quran is the believable Jesus, but if we reject that, then we're left with the Jesus of the Bible who died as a blasphemer, and nobody could actually prove that he resurrected from the dead, because in the first place you couldn't even prove that he were dead. Thank you very much. In my closing statement, I'd like to draw together some of the threads of the debate and see what conclusions we might draw. First of all, I think we can conclude that Jesus of Nazareth did claim to be the Son of Man, predicted by Daniel, and the unique and beloved Son of God. We've seen no evidence on the other side of the debate tonight. All of the evidence that's been offered is that Jesus of Nazareth made these claims. And Shabir has only responded that we would then need an overwhelming proof to show that he was not, in fact, a blasphemer. And I agree with that. In the absence of the resurrection, we would say this man was a blasphemer. Now, what that means is that you can't be a Muslim, because Muslim wants to say he was a good man, he was a prophet. But a prophet is not a blasphemer. So if you believe what Jesus said, you can't be a Muslim. Uh, and if he... Uh, said these things and wasn't who he said he was, he wasn't a prophet. He was a blasphemer. So I think we're agreed and we can draw that conclusion first of all tonight. Second, I think we can draw the conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth suffered death by crucifixion. Shabir in his last speech admits that the historical evidence supports his death on the cross, but for theological reasons he adopts this uh, theological flat earth theory of the apparent death theory. Now again, if you're a Muslim tonight, I would be shaken to the soles of my feet by this. If in order to maintain Muslim belief in Jesus, you've got to adopt the apparent death theory, which has been dead since 1835 among historians, you're in real trouble. So I think this is really a desperation move. Shabir says we can't be sure Jesus was dead. But look, the spear thrust in the side is attested by classical authors like Quintilian as a method of assuring death by crucifixion. And in any case, the way you die by crucifixion is not by bleeding. You die by asphyxiation. In order to breathe, you have to pull yourself up to breathe. And if you collapse back down again, you strangle to death because the lung cavity collapses. And Jesus, just hanging there in a, in a dead position, would be dead after a, a couple of minutes because he would strangle to death. He couldn't breathe. He was clearly dead when he was taken down from the cross. Now, what about the resurrection? We've agreed tonight that the tomb was found empty. We agreed that after that, the uh, disciples saw multiple appearances of Jesus. And we saw that the disciples then came to believe in Jesus' resurrection uh, from the dead, and that was the message they proclaimed. So the issue then is, what is the best explanation? Shabir says what happened is God miraculously assumed him into heaven out of the tomb. But he hasn't answered my four objections to that. Number one, it does not explain then why the disciples began to preach the resurrection rather than just his assumption into heaven. Visionary experiences wouldn't lead alone to belief in his resurrection. Two, it doesn't explain the New Testament distinction between a vision of Jesus and an appearance of Jesus. Uh, in order to do that, there has to be something different about the resurrection appearances. I think it was their physicality and corporeality. Third, it comes too little too late because Jesus has already suffered the shame and humiliation of being defeated by his enemies. It's pointless to assume him into heaven at that point. But resurrection of the dead requires him to be actually killed 
before God miraculously raises him. And finally, number four, Shabir's hypothesis turns Allah into a deceiver who tricked the world into believing Jesus was risen from the dead and thus into believing in Christianity. So, again, I think that the evidence is so clear in tonight's debate. I want to close my speech by inviting you, if you're not already a Christian, to think about becoming a Christian. I wasn't raised in a Christian home or even a church-going family. But when someone shared with me the gospel of Christ as a 16-year-old, I began to read the New Testament. And as I did so, I was captivated by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He had a wisdom about his teachings that I had never read before. He had an authenticity about his life that I had never seen in people who claimed to be his followers in the Christian churches that I had visited. And I couldn't throw him out. I couldn't throw out the, the baby with the bathwater. And after a period of the most intense soul-searching, about six months of this, praying and seeking God, I came to experience a spiritual rebirth as I asked Christ into my life. And God, for the first time that night, became a living reality in my life, a reality that I've walked with now day by day, year by year, for the last 30 years. Tonight, they're going to be giving away some New Testaments after this debate. I want to encourage you, if you haven't found Christ in that personal way, did you do what I did? Pick up a New Testament, begin to read it, and ask yourself, could this really be the truth? I believe it could change your life in the same way that it changed mine. come to the final segment of my talk for tonight, I'd like to respond again to some of the points which I've already responded to several times before. It seems somehow that we are repeating ourselves, and in dialogue, we do need to listen to each other. Dr. Craig thinks I did not reply to his point about multiple appearances, but recall that I referred to a scholar, Raymond Brown, according to whom there was only one appearance to the twelve disciples. And according to uh, Dr. Craig himself, Raymond Brown, is one of the greatest New Testament scholars of our present time. So I'm quoting from a scholar of no mean reputation, and uh, he has answered that point. Now, why would the disciples of Jesus have preached the resurrection? And I've said that what the disciples would have preached was that Jesus is alive. And that would accord with the plausible hypothesis that I've put forward. What about the vision versus appearances? Well... The disciples would have seen a vision of Jesus that is so strong and so different from what later people would report that the disciples were so filled with faith and they were ready to go about and preach that Jesus was alive again. They always had faith in Jesus and now they had the additional confirmation that the Messiah is alive. What about his suffering on the cross? Why would God rescue him after a little bit of suffering? Well, I've already said that that's in fact better than rescuing him after a whole lot of suffering if you feel that suffering is a problem. So, I do not see that there is a point here. And finally, I maintain that God did not deceive the disciples because according to Muslim commentators, God showed Jesus, or God showed the disciples a vision of Jesus, and hence the disciples were not deceived. When they went about preaching that Jesus was alive, that was a true preaching, and it was not a deception. Now, Craig says that he maintained that Jesus said that he is the Son of God, and I did not respond to that. 
But folks, I think that I've responded more than once by saying, first of all, it is historically implausible that Jesus would have preached a faith which is radically different from the faith of Moses, for example. That Jesus lived within Jewish history, and he must have uh, abided by the Jewish law. He could not have preached a faith which, according to Old Testament law, would make him out to be a blasphemer. It, it is just uh, implausible. And theologically, I've shown not according to Muslim theology, but according to Christian theology, and more to the point, according to Christian apologetics, championed by Dr. Craig, Josh McDowell, Norman Geisler, and others, if we understand it properly, Jesus, uh, on whom be peace, after making these claims, died the death of a blasphemer. And if he died at death of a blasphemer, I maintain that we have no good reasons for thinking that God would want to raise him from the dead. And yet, in order to maintain that God raised him from the dead, you can only assume it, you cannot prove it. And so, we are in a circular bit of reasoning there in order to prove that Jesus resurrected from the dead. We can only know that he was true if God raised him from the dead. And God would only raise him from the dead if he were true. But you tell me that he died as a blasphemer. In that case, why would God want to raise him from the dead, thus vindicating the claims of a blasphemer? That would be theologically just impossible. Not according to Muslim theology, but Christian theology. And so I think that that apologetic fails uh, rather badly. Dr. Craig says that it is historically um, known that Jesus, or that you know, the crucified victims used to get a spear thrust. But the Roman authorities had a number of things they could do to a crucified victim. They could spare him, or they could spare him the sparing. Recall that Pilate was sympathetic toward Jesus. He, in fact, did not want to crucify Jesus, but he was pressed into doing that. If Pilate could omit one of the usual tortures, why not? And possibly he did omit that. That is why it is not reported in the earliest of the four Gospels, and only in the last of the four. Dr. Craig says that the crucified victim would have been died after a couple of minutes. Isn't that, is that what you said, Dr. Craig? A couple of minutes? After hanging a couple of minutes, yeah. I, I was surprised because actually what I read is quite different. John Ruzu and Rami Arav write, Death was not always quick, and the victim might agonize for several days before dying. Josephus reports that, and so on, but several days before dying. I think that settles the matter for the time that I have. That's from Jesus and his world, a cultural and uh, archaeological dictionary. So I think finally, folks, we have a choice between two Jesuses, the Jesus of the Quran and the Jesus of the Bible. In some sense, we can believe in them both, and we do. But in one sense, it is only the Jesus of the Quran that is really rationally commendable, and that is the one I commend to you tonight. Thank you.